We all remember the massive shortages of 2020. No one was spared. First, it was toilet paper, then hand sanitizer, and finally, face masks. Some retailers chose to profit from the panic by marking up the cost of masks. Other retailers took a different, more socially conscious approach, like Etsy. Etsy showed just how unique its AI-powered e-commerce model is by adjusting in 24 hours to become a top supplier of masks at reasonable prices. Once known as a digital flea market that sold collector's items to cat lovers, Etsy has matured into an AI-driven, customer-obsessed major retail player. The mask scenario is just one example of how the site can adjust on the fly. Our guest today, Etsy CTO Mike Fisher, is here to share how Etsy has transformed itself in the last few years, how AI has played a central role, and its big plans for this year's holiday season. Mike, thanks for joining us. So great to have you here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. Really uh, my pleasure. Well, right now you're the CTO at Etsy, but actually you have quite the illustrious career leading up to this. You were a captain and pilot in the US Army. You were CTO at Quigo. You were VP at PayPal. You had various leadership roles at General Electric. How did that all come together? I mean, working in the in the army and now being CTO of Etsy. Yeah, I've definitely had a what I consider just a, a really interesting career. I've been very very lucky in that. You know, I think it all started in high school. I discovered computers and programming. Taught myself how to program, and then I attended West Point the United States Military Academy and majored in computer science. So I always had this love of computer science, but attending West Point, I had commitments. And so I was commissioned into the army as an aviation officer. And they taught me how to fly. I flew helicopters for about seven years on active duty. And I love my time in the military, I love my service, but I also always had this love of computer science. And I even did my master's while I was in the military. And so I had to make a big decision between staying in and remaining as an aviation officer or getting out. And I ultimately decided that I wanted to pursue a software engineering career. And so that's when I left and joined General Electric as a software engineer. I've continued to love programming, really thought I just wanted to be an engineer and then maybe someday if I was lucky to be an architect and I thought that would be my career path. And then one of my mentors reached out and said, you really should look into and consider engineering management as a career. And she convinced me to do that and then really helped me my first couple of years in engineering management, learning how to manage software engineers. I had a lot of leadership experience from the military that, that carried over, but really managing software engineers and projects and so forth was different. Uh, but that started me, jump-started my career into, you know, sort of leadership and management within the industry. As you mentioned, I then joined PayPal as VP of Engineering and Architecture and got to see this enormous amount of growth, both in the organization. I think when I started, there was about 30 engineers and we had several hundred when I left, as well as in the transactional volume and scaling the site and keeping the site highly available. And then I, I left there for an ad tech startup, as you mentioned, Quigo in New York was an ad tech startup that I, I joined and became their CTO. And also got to see the massive amount of scaling from producing ads around the internet. And that was acquired by AOL. I left that and said, I wanna apply all this scaling knowledge into the industry. And so I started with a couple of friends of mine, a consultant called AKF Partners, and we our sort of specialty was around scaling. So we wrote a couple of books about it. I ended up and continued back for my doctorate in management at that time. 
and really wanted to be this practitioner scholar and taking the you know sort of knowledge that researchers were producing and bringing it into the industry and helping people with their organization and technology scale. And I did that and for almost a decade. And one of the companies that I met during that time when they were just a startup in 2008 was Etsy. And I got to know the company and always, I just loved the mission around giving this marketplace for creative sellers to produce and find their audience. I loved it. I got to know the company. I came back several times for either speaking engagements or to consult with them. And then in 2017, when Josh Silverman took over as CEO, he brought me back in as a consultant and kind of one thing led to another and he, he gave me the opportunity to stay. And I said, only, I only thought for Etsy. You know, I, I just love the mission. I love the culture. It's such a strong engineering culture that's just got amazing people. And it's now been four and a half years and nothing has changed my mind about that. Amazing mission, amazing culture, and just super strong engineering talent that I've really enjoyed getting to know. And arguably it's been some the most successful and amazing years for Etsy as a company in these last few years. For our listeners that are not familiar with Etsy, can you describe it? Yeah, so Etsy is a global online marketplace for buyers and sellers. And we have, just to give some of a scale, I mentioned that you know, I'm sort of into scale. We have about 100 million items on the marketplace. And to give a sort of context of how large that is, I think the average grocery store is like you know, 40,000 items. So that's like having 2,500 grocery stores and massive amount of items don't have SKUs, you know, the creators, the sellers, it's all handmade or vintage items. They get to make and describe it how they want because some of it's very unique. And we have about 100 million active buyers and seven and a half million sellers. And we bring these together. And our mission is to keep commerce human. So we bring them together, one buyer, one seller at a time. And as a marketplace, we want to find those buyers and get on their buyer journey and find the right product that they're after. And it might be, you know, still it could be something quirky, um, you know, a gift for your cat, but it might be something just amazing and beautiful that's handmade, like a dining room table or amazing art. You know, it's almost anything you can think of, you can all find on Etsy and somebody around the world is, is making it. And it's just beautiful and amazing. I'm always so inspired by our sellers and what they can produce. Now, you wouldn't tell from my background here, probably, because it's uh, pretty empty. But if we were actually set up in my, my wife's office here at home, you would see a lot of pieces acquired on Etsy that are hanging up against the wall. She's a huge fan and has bought so many pieces from there that are absolutely beautiful. Anytime she buys something from there, it's great. It always improves our setup. <laughs> So you then effectively have two audiences as a company, right? You have both the buyers and the sellers at the same time to cater to and make sure they can do what they want to do. Can you say a bit about that and, and what is your focus? Yes, absolutely. We have, you're, you're exactly right. As the marketplace, we sit in the middle and we bring those two parties together. And we have groups of product engineers that are focused on the buyer as well as the seller, although there's, of course, a significant overlap. And, you know, from the seller side, we know that most of these individuals are creators, artists, craftspeople who want to do that. They don't want to run the business. So we try to make the run of the business side as easy as possible because that's way secondary to them. They'd rather be in their workshop, on their kitchen table, making something. That's what drew them to the marketplace. 
And so our goal is to make it easy and also bring them that audience. I mentioned like, you know, of course they want lots of, of things, but like getting someone who loves their items as much as they do is really fulfilling. And so finding that item through our search and through ads is really, really important for them. And so we've got to do a good job for both that. And then on the buyers, the same thing. Everyone's busy. And in this world of sort of 24-7, Betsy's the place for special. And people do come there to be inspired and find something that you can't find anywhere else. But we also know that you don't have all day. And so we've got to get that 100 million items down into a manageable list for you to look at. Some of it might be something you're not even thinking of. Or you might be on a very, very specific journey. Like I saw this in a friend's house and I want to get something very similar. And so we've got to figure those, all those different buyer journeys out. And you mentioned in the intro that we are a heavy, heavy big data machine learning company. I describe Etsy as kind of an iceberg where what you see up top above the waterline is the marketplace. What you don't see is that we're really a big data machine learning company. And again, just to give you a sense of the scale, on the data side, we process over 6 billion events of data a day. And we use all of that in machine learning algorithms to power everything from recommendations to search to all of these parts of the buyer journey. That's what we try to do to keep commerce human. We power it with you know, this really large data. Now, when you joined back in 2017, what was your first order of business? What did you want to get done right away? I was actually brought in to look at and analyze for Josh the infrastructure versus product development and to see if we could be able to invest less in supporting the infrastructure and more in the product development, right? The people, you know, the buyers and sellers both really want more features. They want that functionality and the better search and, and all of that. What they don't necessarily care about is how the site is hosted as long as it's available. And so when I looked at that, I decided that one of the first things the company should do is migrate out of the data centers. There were three data centers and into the cloud. So that was our sort of first order of business was a really massive migration. And we did that in under two years. And we migrated not only the marketplace, but all of the supporting infrastructure around that, that processes all that big data and machine learning and got that to the cloud. And the reason for that was really about freeing up more of our engineers to be able to work on stuff that I think about it as higher in the stack. I say that we're, we're moving engineers closer to the customers. And that's what we've been able to do is focus more and more of our engineers up the stack closer to the customers to make what they really, really care about. What is it that the engineers now get to focus on then? We certainly still have infrastructure and SRE engineers who support the site and keep it highly available. I also tend to say that Availability is our number one feature, right? That, you know, we first and foremost, we keep the site available, but we can also focus on performance and we can focus on as we grow the product engineering team, keeping them efficient, which is another aspect of scale. As you grow this organization, at one point, right after I joined, we we're down to about 270 engineers and we're now up over 600 plus engineers. And as we scale that organization and build more features, we need to keep those engineers efficient. So the engineers can work on stuff that helps each other. And then those product engineers, we can expand and we can work on things like recommendations and search and redoing our mobile app, the sell on Etsy app, and continue to invest in the buy on Etsy, the buyer app, and all of these feature functionality that we've been able to, to work on. And so we've been able to apply more and more of our percentage of engineers 
into product development? One thing that when we're reading up on Etsy's recent accomplishments stood out, of course, is the ability to adapt so quickly in case of the pandemic to start offering a very large number of masks. How did that come about? How did you first even realize this was possible and how, I mean, the sellers need to change what they're doing, I imagine, otherwise you can't offer it. That's right. In March of 2020, right as the pandemic in the US started, if you had come to Etsy and searched for face masks, you would have either found a Halloween mask, which we have amazing Halloween costumes that made by our sellers, or like a facial cleansing mask. Because again, you know, some sellers make items, beauty products. What you wouldn't find is a protective mask that you would think of today. And so we immediately, when we saw that this was becoming a trend and people were coming to Etsy to look for this, we started working on our search and we basically trained, we took humans and we trained several hundred on these new masks, trained our algorithms and then fed that back in. And overnight, we were able to retrain the algorithms by jumpstarting it with some human, you know, we call it human in the loop, some humans annotating what these masks are, retrain that so that you would see these. And then, as you mentioned, on the sort of supply side, we reached out to sellers and said, look, there's this massive demand. And we think that this can be an opportunity for Etsy to do good in the world. We do lots of good in the world, but this is another particular time. And so we reached out to sellers and said, as the pandemic is hitting, many of you have access or are seamstress and you know access to sewing machines or, or machinery that can make this. Think about switching and making this. And overnight, we have people that might be sewing wedding dresses start making masks and able to, you know, to, to switch this. And this is the great, again, the great thing, not only do we have an engineering culture that can overnight pivot to this, I'll talk about some more of the things we had to do. We had to add banners to make sure people were safe and then even add functionality for sellers not to get overwhelmed, that we weren't used to sellers selling thousands of items a day. And so we had to, from our member services team and our trust and safety teams, we had to put in new process, the engineering teams, had to make ways to sort of shuffle people into search so that they didn't get overwhelmed from the seller. But the sellers could pivot so quickly that they don't have these massive supply chains like most e-commerce or retail did. And that's why in the early days, so many people couldn't find masks, but you could find them on Etsy. And you, I think you mentioned, I don't know if you've seen the data, but like, yeah, 1.7% of our gross merchandise sales in 2020 were from masks. So a massive amount um, that year. That's absolutely amazing. That's quite the switch up there. Yeah. Now, one thing I'm really intrigued by, as you said, you know, you have a human in the loop process to essentially reteach the AI system powering the search. Before we get into the human in the loop part, I'm really curious about the AI systems overall that you're deploying at Etsy. Where are they and, and what are they doing? Yeah, I mean, I have to probably start with search because that's been just a massive focus of ours over the past four years. Yeah, I think the team has really taken us from, you know, probably early, early sort of stage search into the modern search era over this past four years. So I think, you know, they've jumpstarted us with that. And the way we think about search is really sort of these three stages. There's the information retrieval layer, which is basically grabbing the very, very basic. It's something like solar that's grabbing terms in a TF-IDF sort of way. And then second layer is around this candidate selection. And we call that kind of a first pass. And then the second pass is a re-ranking. And so in all of these, we've been applying machine learning. And the information retrieval layer 
we introduced something called Neural Information Retrieval, NIR, and this uses deep neural networks that are trained on user behavior data and language patterns to encode search queries and listings via dense representation. And when we applied that, we were able to see a 15% decrease in no result queries. So you know you might type something super specific and not see anything if you're just using the basic you know TF-IDF results. But by applying this, which connected this user behavior and language patterns, we're able to reduce that significantly. And what this addresses are things that traditional term-based retrieval just doesn't do. Things like difficult to understand antonyms, hypernyms, synonyms, things like that, sensitivity to spelling errors or different word formats, and then you know the fragility of this morphological variance, like woman and woman. This is very, very data hungry. I mentioned we process a lot of data every day, but it was super, super useful. And it wasn't meant to replace this exact term matching, and we actually merged them together. And that was one of the first things we did. Recently this year, we've introduced what we call XWalk. And the whole goal here is we call it bridging or reducing the semantic gap. The term that you put into the term that the sellers use is the semantic gap. And I think about this in things like blazer and sports coat. Like as a seller, I might put my listing in as a blazer, but you might come along and search for sports coat. And we need to be able to bridge that semantic gap. That's just one example. You know, it could be anything from color to, to many other things. And so one thing that we introduced this year was, again, not to replace this information retrieval layer, but to supplement it was what we call XWalk. And XWalk is a large-scale, real-time graph retrieval engine. And it provides more relevant searches by blending some of the listing facts with the buyer intent. And we did go public with this metric so I could talk about it, that this large-scale graph retrieval engine was able to provide an incremental 50 million in annualized GMS. So 50 million in more sales for our sellers by this. But again, very, very data hungry. XWalk allows us to use an 11 times increase in data leverage. So we went from pulling about 150 million data points to 1.6 billion for a given query. So massive amount of data that's processed. And so that's all at that like information retrieval layer at that first pass, which helps with candidate selection, over the years, we've introduced this, what we call the semantic candidate set. And we did something with a VPCG or vector propagated click graphs. And we embedded machine learning models into the candidate selection. And we built these vectors off the data that we had around users clicking. That's why it's the VPCG. And that was able to, so when you get the information you know, from the IR layer, you get this massive candidate set and we reduce it with the first pass. And we did that with these VPCG. And then we pass it to the second pass. And this is about re-ranking. And we've done a couple things here. You know, one of those, we introduced a Lambda Mart, which is a pairwise learning to rank algorithm. And this has really helped us, right? Because as I mentioned, the buyer they come to us to be inspired, but they don't have all day. We'd love them to spend all day, but they don't have all day necessarily. So we still have thousands of items in this candidate set and we need to put at the very top, because like most search engines, people click on, in our case, purchase from mostly the first or second page. So we re-rank them to get the most likely items up. And so we use this Lambda Mart algorithm to do that. And then most recently, we've began introducing real-time features for model inference. And what this allows is to have in-session personalization. So prior to this, we would take 
yesterday's data and process it and then use that to represent queries to you. So if you search for a blue sports coat and clicked on certain things or purchased items, I can use that data so that when I come in and search for it, I get the benefit of everything that you looked at and for my personalization, but now we can do it in session. So if I type something for, you know, I might type leather or click on leather goods. And then if I just type in wallet for my search, I can now use this idea that, oh, but this person has enjoyed looking or searching for leather items and put leather wallets at the top of the search ranking. And so all of this has enabled just better and better candidate selection, heavy use of machine learning, and this personalization in real time. Now, that's amazing. It's really interesting the way you lay this out, Mike, with, I mean, the clicks, the user clicks are essentially guiding what the positives are, right? And, and what, what the right connections are. I am curious though about how do you get, do you need any negatives? Because if everything is a positive at some point, you don't learn anything either, right? So how do you bring the negatives for the training data? Yeah, that's right. And we use like NDCG as a way to analyze. And so when we train and replay different algorithms offline, we look at items that were very high in the list, but didn't get clicked or favorited or added a card or any of this. And that is a negative signature to us that someone passed over that item. And so you're exactly right. We use the positives, but we also use the negatives to see, oh, maybe this item didn't belong in the first or second row. Maybe we should be a little bit lower. In the first part, the information retrieval part, the neural information retrieval system that you described, I'm curious, is that trained in an unsupervised way or is that also trained supervised on, on clicks? Yeah, that is trained in a supervised way with the clicks and with basically taking more of that user behavior and using that to train the models. Now, everything you described so far makes me think of text the way you described it. I'm not sure if I'm correct about that, but Etsy obviously is also very visual. When I visit the site, I even more look at pictures than read things, right? So how do you bring in the, the visual part? Yeah, that's a great question. So you're right, much of our work in the early days was around text. So it was about the text that the sellers wrote for the listings. It was about text for tags. It was about the search query, you know, the text in that. But what we've done over the past about 18 months is focus on computer vision. And so we have ongoing lots of projects around this. One of this is really building a classification model based on, and we use ResNet 15, 101, and things like that as the basis, but then train it on our particular items. And again, we're doing things with like this human in the loop. So we're, we're having humans help us with, you know, identify, in this case, over 100,000 human annotated images for further training of those models. So, you know, we take something that's pre-trained and sort of more generic items, and then we specifically train it on ours. And so what we're doing is we're trying to identify this listing image so that we can feed that as a feature into our models. So we don't rely on just what the seller describes it as. We can actually use what we think the image is. We're also using another application that we use in computer vision is mature content. And so we're using image content cluster prediction models that can help us flag things that should be only for mature content. Another interesting way that we're using this is home decor and trying to identify style, whether your style is farmhouse or you know modern or something else, 
we're trying to identify style and you know our current candidate set is reaching above 70% precision to identify these types of styles and that could be used if we notice that you're clicking on again this real time clicking on or interested in a particular style we can start feeding more of those in that because maybe this particular buyer journey you're looking for a particular style for you or a friend or family or a gift or something so style is a really interesting one. And then the last sort of one I can talk about, I guess, is color. Color as an attribute is applicable to like 98% of our listings. So almost everything has a color, but only like 56% of them have actually color labels on them. And you know the most used variant, which is that drop down to see like, oh, can I get this in different sizes or something? But the most used is color. And so we're building computer vision that takes the primary color of that listing and provides it as a tag on the image. And that way, whether you're using it in search or recommendations or any other advertisements or wherever you want to use it, you can identify the primary color of this item and help shoppers, buyers search that way as well. So we're moving into, you know, way away from just a pure text-based and heavily, heavily into computer vision. Now, the examples you give and the, the things you do with computer vision, they're quite, I would say, disconnected from the typical academic computer vision data set classification label. So it seems like you probably have to develop a lot of your in-house research to see what neural net architectures as well as what kind of data annotation schemes are most effective for what you need for your buyers, your sellers. And I'm curious, are there any, any lessons learned or any kind of interesting technical learnings about your kind of process of the whole computer vision stack that you have? You're right. We spend a lot of time taking, you know, sort of the academic algorithms and data sets and so forth, and then having to apply something specific for Etsy. You know, I think for us, one of them is certainly around the human in the loop. I mentioned that we need humans. It can't just be a pure computer classified or identified that our items are typically so unique that it's not something you can find in a general data set that gets recognized because you get this interesting world at Etsy where you can cross categories very often. Something might be a lamp, but also a piece of art. Yeah, or one of our favorite, another feature that we've been working on is the gifting feature. So if you're looking for a gift, you can put in ideas and we'll recommend stuff and something that the team has you know, been demonstrating as a interesting sort of what, you know, problem that this solves are things like pizza earrings. You wouldn't think of, you know, like, but some people who loves pizza and might want to wear it as earrings. Of course, some seller on Etsy, many, probably many sellers make pizza earrings that look like pizza. And this is something that's kind of unique. You are not going to find that in a lot of data sets. And so having someone that human in the loop to be able to identify some of these more unique things where we cross categories has been really important for us that it, it can't be just 100% sort of computer driven. One of the things that I've noticed, IKEA has an app where you can effectively show your house and see how furniture would fit in your house, which is of course complicated because you need to understand the sizing and everything. I'm curious if you think about the computer vision side, is, is, there, a, is there a buyer side also where a buyer can take pictures of their house or the room they're trying to decorate and instead of typing a search query, they would just put in a picture and say, improve my room and, and something would come back out. Yeah, I, I love it. And I think the answer is definitely yes. You know, we have in our mobile app for buyers, the Buy on Etsy app, the ability for AR 
And so you can do exactly that with a piece of art or something. You can see it on your wall and see the dimensions. I've used that recently to see how the, you know, how large the print I should buy for my wall. We also have done some work with third parties around, it's called the Etsy house, which is this sort of 3D virtual walkthrough of a house that's fully furnished. And everybody with Etsy products, everyone who's seen it says, basically, can I just buy that entire house with all the furnishings in it? Because it's, it's so beautiful and amazing. Yeah, I love the idea. We've talked about like eventually, should a buyer be able to take a picture of a lamp or a, a couch or a piece of furniture and us find that style? and something that would match. And I, I think that is absolutely where we're going with computer vision and style and all of that, you know, be able to recommend, you know, for maybe for those of us like myself who aren't necessarily the greatest designers or interior designers, like I would love something to be able to say, this really complements. So yes, I think that's absolutely in the future. Nothing that has really stood out in the last year, I would say for me, you know, AI Twitter is the ability for people to create art with AI systems helping with the art creation. So where you can maybe just type something, you say, one of the famous examples, of course, is, you know, you want maybe an avocado chair and it somehow generates a picture of an avocado chair, but that doesn't necessarily really exist, but somehow it knows how to generate that picture. And more generally, a visual ability to create visual scenery based on text, right, in all kinds of styles. And that makes me curious more generally on what, what do you see as the future for AI in terms of enabling your creators, your sellers? Yeah, I do think when I talk to my teams that I think we are going to use AI and machine learning on almost every part of the site, the marketplace, all the way from the start of, if you think about the seller's journey, when she starts to write the listing, that we could use AI and machine learning to help them accurately describe or more visually describe their items to make sure the tags are correct. We could look at the quality of the photos. All of this, we could talk about the categories that these items are in. Like you said, maybe even earlier in the creative process, we could give them ideas on projects based on what we've seen with their sort of current listings. And then all the way through, of course, heavily on the buyer side with the search and the recommendations and the gifting and all of these there's almost no part of the site or the sort of marketplace journey that I don't think wouldn't be helped by more machine learning. I mean, we're using, I mentioned mature content, we're using machine learning and we have been for years on the trust and safety side to make sure that the marketplace is secure and as much intellectual property is protected. You know, all of this is heavily used by machine learning models and we're just continuing to invest in there. So yeah, as I mentioned, the mission is about keeping commerce human, and it's this one buyer, one seller at a time, but it's powered by such strong engineering, data science, machine learning, big data. Yeah, that kind of makes me wonder if you think further ahead, what do you see as the, the bigger picture future of online marketplaces? I do think people are short on time and attention span. And so there's only a few places that they can sort of think about where to go. And I think more and more Etsy is becoming one of those places that comes first to mind when people say, I need to purchase something. And, you know, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, certainly the drive for face masks, as we, we've talked about, was the sort of impetus that helped people sort of remember Etsy a little bit. But what we've done since then, and now that the masks are a much, much smaller portion, 
is we've brought them back and we've shown them through not only these amazing items that the sellers have, but this all this technology that we've brought to bear on the marketplace that Etsy is a place that you can go every day. And it, in this world where you know there is so much automation and it's dropped off on your doorstep, that's great. But I do think people people still want something that's special. And they want to talk to sellers and they want to customize it. They want to personalize it. But they give the gift to themselves maybe or they give a gift to a loved one, a family member, a friend, someone like they want it to be special. And like Etsy is the place to come for special. You know, you think about like, Someone had a wedding or a birthday or a baby. And if you say you got it from Etsy, people know it's special. They know that you've taken the time. You've probably talked to the seller. You know there's a story behind it. It's a small business. There's so much positive. And I think that is the future. There's just fewer and fewer places that people are going to keep in their minds to go. Certainly, there's the massive retailers that all of us need for commodity items. But then there's places that just bring joy and special. And I think Etsy's one of them. And so I think that's, you know, one of the things that we're going to see in these marketplaces is there's just fewer places that people remember to go. Say so joy, getting special gifts. We're heading into the holiday season, obviously. Is there something that Etsy does specifically to prepare for that? Yeah, we start in, well, really the entire year, you know, is built around our product roadmaps and feature development for the holidays. But from a pure infrastructure, we start in around July. And we start working on plans for this period in the holidays. I mentioned availability is our kind of most important feature. And so it's really, really critical that we have high availability and performance. And so we have a team dedicated to this starting about July. We work with our partner who hosts the cloud that we're on Google. We work with them. We plan. We give them all of our sort of predictions on our size. And we even run these game days in which we load up traffic and you know artificially and we ramp it to a much higher percentage than we think we're going to even need and it shows us where the cracks are in the system we do that early enough that we have the teams can focus on this and this might be something the caching layer database layer it could be a service a microservice that whatever and we really you know kind of push that all out or ramp that up so we can find that and find it in time to fix it and we've done all that and then coming into the actual season, we, of course, monitor everything. Etsy's been known historically for monitor everything. We do monitor an awful lot. We watch the graphs, and we're constantly sort of very vigilantly watching and monitoring for, for things. And then we're very good at reacting. Should there be an issue, you know, the, the team is really, really good at reacting. Everybody pitches in. It's part of, I mentioned, the wonderful culture of Etsy is we have this blameless culture. You know, it stems from our blameless postmortems when there will be incidents and there will be issues. And we take away from there and do a postmortem that we call blameless postmortem because we're not looking for who to blame. We are looking for why something happened, what surprised us, what can we learn from this. And by having that amazing sort of open culture, if something happens, people jump in and actively say, well, I just did this. Could it be that? I just made this change. And we are continuous deliveries, you know, or continuous deployment. So we're pushing code a lot, up to 50 times a day. And so any of these changes might might happen. And so, but nobody sort of hides and, you know, says it couldn't have been my change. It was always, I made this, what can I do to help? And everyone pitches in. And because you have that amazing culture, we respond very quickly. So 
lots and lots of months and months of prep for the holidays so that our buyers and sellers have a wonderful holiday season. That's what we're, we're here for. Well, I love this blameless post-mortem culture. It sounds amazing. That also makes me wonder back to actually your earlier days. I mean, as a captain serving the army, as, as a pilot, helicopter pilot, I wonder, if, are there any kind of lessons that you've brought in from that into what you're doing today? Yeah, I, I mentioned leadership. And I think certainly from the military, you know, from West Point in my time, active duty in the National Guard, that they taught me an awful lot about leadership. And I, that sort of is applicable almost anywhere. The other thing, specifically as a pilot, I think breaking down the situation into a simple, the simplest parts of it and trying to stay calm. I mean, there's very stressful times, you know, within technology, just like, you know, within a pilot's sort of career, but trying to stay calm, trying to stay focused on what the problem is. And again, often debugging, very similar in an aircraft as it is on the site, you're trying to debug. And sometimes the signals that you're getting aren't from the actual cause of it. And that could be the aircraft as well. You might have a, a master caution, but have to actually try to dig in and figure out like, okay, what's really happening? Is it just a bad sensor or is there something really serious going on? So a lot of that trying to stay calm in the situation and thinking things through and, and trying not to jump. Oftentimes, unfortunately, in aircrafts, it's not the actual issue with the system. It's that the human side of it, that they do something reactive that they didn't maybe even need to um, or they do something incorrectly. And so um, trying to remember that and, you know, and carry those lessons over, I think, has been helpful in my career. Well, it seems if you're if you're used to debugging things in the air where your life is at stake, <laughs> it must feel pretty relaxed to debug uh, server issues by comparison. I don't know. Sometimes there's a lot of stress when you know there's seven and a half million sellers depending on you. A lot of people depending on you. Yeah, yeah. But the team does a great job. They're they're amazing. I'm just really proud of of that culture and the the brilliant people that that support and build the site. Mike, thank you so much for coming on. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this and thank you for the opportunity to be here. It was really my pleasure. 